my name is Colston. I am in third grade. Um, and today I am going to be reading Matthew 5, 6. And it is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is the word of the Lord. Kind of proud of that kid. Uh, great to be with you again this weekend. If this is your first time here, let me introduce myself. My name is Ryan. I get the honor and privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. And today, we continue on in this study uh, in the Beatitudes. And, you know, this week, as I was thinking about the verse that Karsten just read, I'm reminded that, uh, you know, there are certain places where the worst of the human condition come into bold relief. Um, we could talk about the parking lot at my kid's school right around three o'clock. I don't know why all sanity disappears. I mean, does anybody know the meaning of the word to zipper as you're exiting the parking lot? But uh, probably the greatest tragedy happens in one of the great halls of American commerce. It's called Costco. And <clears throat> I always wonder about people like poor Linda here and what it must be like to work at the sample stands at Costco. <clears throat> what is it about Costco? Here are people, they have carts full of like three to $500 worth of groceries, and yet life stops when they see a tasty morsel at the end of the aisle. I mean, have you ever had that experience where you're walking through Costco and there's the guy that's like standing there for 15 minutes because he's hoping that the taquito is gonna come out any second? Or, you know, you're, you're there and you're watching these people and they'll do this loop. Like if they find one they really like, it's kind of like a Lay's potato chip. You just can't have one. And they go back again and again and again. And it's like people, they're just samples. But if I'm brutally honest, not even I am immune from the power of the Costco sample. I mean, there are times since boys and I are walking around Costco and, uh, you know, I, I see one of those booths and I secretly have this hope that maybe this is going to be something substantial, you know? Maybe it's a ravioli, maybe it's a meatball, maybe it's a piece of an egg roll. And I get up there, and it's just a tortilla chip with a little bit of hummus. And I'm like, come on. And you know, the reality is, in so many ways, Costco is such a powerful metaphor for life, isn't it? The reality is, as human beings, we were wired with deep, innate needs for things like security, significance, and love. And the trouble is, if we're not careful, we can walk about this life a lot like Costco, looking for the next tasty, tasty morsel rather than asking what it is that truly satisfies. And it's why the passage, this verse that we're looking at today, is so incredibly powerful for our lives. You know, if you're just joining us, we're continuing on in this series in the Sermon on the Mount and what's known as the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount, no doubt, is the single most profound writing that has ever been penned in human history. Personally, it's had a profound transformative effect even in my own life. And as we come to these Beatitudes, we find this invitation on the part of Jesus to look at life through a different set of lenses, to look at life in a different kind of way. And what Jesus is going to do throughout these Beatitudes, he's going to remind us that everything we thought about how the world works has been turned on its head. In fact, in this section known as the Beatitudes, we derive its name from the Latin word beatitus because each one starts with this phrase, blessed. 
And throughout the Beatitudes, we've been reminded that those who are blessed are the unexpected. It's the people who see their desperate need for God. The people who are willing to lay their rights to the side. The people who are mourning and grieving. And as we come to this Beatitude, we find that those who are blessed are those who are marked by a singular hunger, drive, and passion in life. And it's why I want to suggest to you that the key idea of this beatitude, the key idea of what we're going to look at, is that people who hunger and thirst for God's kingdom have been blessed with the refined palate of spiritual transformation. And the promise is they will feast on his goodness. And when we understand that reality, as we begin to acquire a taste for that which matters most in the kingdom of heaven, we find that God is doing something more beautiful and profound than we ever could have imagined. Now, before we launch into this beatitude, I want to remind us again about the purpose of these beatitudes. You know, the purpose of the beatitudes aren't so much to give us a laundry list of virtue as if they're a list of, hey, do this a little bit more, but rather they're an invitation. They're a perspective recalibrator that invites us to look at life through a different set of lenses. Jesus is saying this not as a call to be more like this, though that invitation is certainly there. The invitation is rather, when you find yourself in this place, be encouraged because you're blessed. You understand everything that matters most in the kingdom of heaven. And that is certainly true as we come to the beatitude before us today. Because what Jesus is going to remind us of is he's going to remind us of the distraction of hungering for all the wrong things. You know, the one who Jesus says is blessed are those who hunger and those who thirst for righteousness. You know, when Jesus talks about hunger and thirst, in many ways, that may seem like a concept that's distant for many of us. I mean, as 21st century Americans, the reality is we live in a world of abundance. We live in a world where our needs are often met, and yet the tragedy is Though our hunger may not necessarily be for food and drink, the reality is, as human beings, we were wired with desperate needs and longings that we seek to satisfy in a thousand different ways. You know, it's really intriguing when you look at this word in the Greek, or these words in the Greek, to hunger and thirst. This phrase in the Greek, according to scholars Lou and Nita, remind us that connected with this idea of hunger and thirst is this need for a strong desire to attain some goal with the implication of an existing lack or to desire strongly. Bound up in this idea of hungering and thirsting is this desperate, deep desire that this thing that I need isn't just some passing whim, but it is something that is so essential for life that if I don't have it, I literally will starve. In other words, what this hunger and thirst is not, is it's not my kids walking in after dinner and saying, Dad, I'm still hungry. Can I have a snack as they plow through the pantry? This kind of hunger and thirst is one that is so desperate, so fundamental, that if you don't feast on it, life, as it was always designed, ceases to exist. You know, as I tried to understand this concept of hungering and thirsting this week, I was reminded that maybe one of the best metaphors in our culture today is when we say that someone is hungry for air, as they're on a ventilator or maybe struggling to breathe, have you ever had that experience of standing alongside someone as they labor to take each and every breath? 
It's painful to watch because uh, there is this desperate sense of desperation that if they don't get the next breath, what's going to happen? And I think it's here that we begin to understand what this passion, what this heart for hungering and thirsting is really all about. You know, as human beings, uh, we were created with deep needs as a created being to be in relationship with God. He created humanity, placed them in the Garden of Eden. And there, Adam and Eve existed in a perfect state of relationship with God. But as a result of their sin, Adam and Eve stepped out of the rule of the kingdom of heaven. They stepped out of living under God's authority. And as a result, they found themselves in the kingdom of self, a kingdom where suffering, loss, and death become the norm. Rather than looking to God to meet those deep needs of love, of significance, of security, they began to look in all the wrong places. And thus began the search of the human heart to what I would call an idol. Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, the Idols of Money, Sex, and Power, writes profoundly on this point. And before we go into that, I would just ask you, um, please keep the Keller family in your prayers uh, this week. As many of you may know, uh, Tim went home to be with Jesus. Uh, this week. And uh, many have been touched through the power and the impact of what Keller brought um, to our understanding of faith. And in this book, Counterfeit Gods, he tells us that an idol is anything you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I know I'll feel significant and secure. He goes on to say that an idol is anything other than God of which you say that apart from that thing, life would be no longer worth living. And friends, let's be honest, idols take all kinds of different forms, don't they? An idol can be success. An idol can be accomplishment in your career. An idol can be uh, what the amount is in your bank account. An idol can be ministry. An idol can be your family. Idols take all kinds of different shapes and sizes. And what marks an idolatrous attachment to a thing is when we ascribe to the good things that God gives us in this life, ultimate value. That's why I so love the writings of the Puritans around their idea of sin. Because the Puritans reminded us that sin is not just the external action of a thing. Sin is first and foremost that I love another thing more than God, and I'm willing to pursue that thing in order to meet the deepest needs of my heart. The big 75-cent theological term that we use to describe this are misplaced affections. And you hear the heartbreak of God in the book of Jeremiah when he describes just the burden as he watches his people chase after all these things. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. They loved something other than me. And because of that, they've dug out cisterns for themselves. These these big trenches that they would use to hold water. Broken cisterns that could hold no water. Literally, these big caverns to hold water, but there's a leak in the bottom. And all the things that they are spending their lives on in order to meet those deepest needs. All the while, the water of life and joy and fulfillment slips through their fingers. And friends, one of the greatest tragedies of this life are the ways in which we waste our time, our energy, our life, and our breath in the quest of the things that were never meant. 
to really satisfy. You know, as I was thinking about this week, I was reminded a couple years ago, hearing about a lawsuit that was taking place. Somebody was suing Taco Bell because their meat in their tacos wasn't 100% pure meat. And I'm thinking, and that's just occurring to you now. We don't eat Taco Bell because Taco Bell is nutritious. We eat Taco Bell because it tastes good, right? We eat Taco Bell because it's a quick fix in the moment. And yet, in how many different ways do we live our lives in the same kind of the pursuit of spiritual fast food? You know? We want the quick fix that satisfies in the moment. We want to meet the deepest needs of our heart our way and on our terms. And we go from drive-through to drive-through of what this world has to offer, never really experiencing the nourishment and the life that we've been invited to. And it's why Jesus, with so much grace and compassion, is going to bring us back to what a healthy diet looks like in the kingdom. And he's going to invite us to hunger and thirst, to recognize that we're blessed when we hunger and thirst for the greatest thing. And it's why we'll be invited to acquire a taste for righteousness. You know, have you ever paused for a second to imagine what it was like on this day as Jesus was teaching these words? One of my favorite artistic depictions of the Sermon on the Mount is a painting by Rosselli. And in this painting, what's so powerful is you have different snippets and scenes from the Sermon on the Mount. Now imagine for a second what it was like as Jesus was teaching, who it was that was standing in front of him. Jesus was speaking to his disciples with the crowds listening on, but in those crowds was such a diverse group of people. On one hand, you had those that society had rejected, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the rejected, and the overlooked. And they hear Jesus' words that the most important thing is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. At the same time, I imagine the tax collector, or I'm sorry, the Pharisees standing there hearing these same words and priding themselves, oh, this is awesome that we're supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness because we have this down. We've observed all the externals of the law. We've done everything that the law requires of us. And they prided themselves on their ability to experience transformation on the outside. But what Jesus does in this beatitude is that he reminds us that spiritual transformation is not the journey from the outside in, but it is a transformation by grace that must take place from the inside out. In fact, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to speak in what I believe is literally the core verse of the entire sermon, where in Matthew 5.20, he speaks these words, for I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now think about those two groups for a moment when Jesus says those words. For the tax collector and the prostitute, oh my word, if the Pharisees and the scribes can't get in, who can? For the scribes and the Pharisees as they heard these words, well, wait a second, Jesus, we, we did everything we were supposed to do. What do you mean we don't get in to the kingdom of heaven? And it's here that we come face to face with the reality that Jesus is saying that the single most desperate and important need that we have in human existence 
is the need for what he calls righteousness. So what's he talking about here? For example, I find it rather intriguing that this same word for righteousness that's used in the Greek also appears in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul makes this powerful declaration that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he goes on in verse 17 to make this profound statement, that it is the righteous that live by faith. Again, these are words that because of the impact of the Protestant Reformation that we've lost the shock of just how deep and profound these words really are. But what he is reminding us of is that spiritual transformation isn't first and foremost about something we accomplish by our religious performance. But it is an act of grace given by the grace and the mercy of God who draws us into this life of transformation and invites us to walk on this journey of following him in every way. It really is the heart of the gospel that God was so moved in compassion for humanity that he sent his only son to the cross to die for you and I. He pays the full penalty for our sin in that moment. Three days later, he rises from the grave and he connects us in that resurrection life, placing his Holy Spirit within the people of God. And now this righteousness we experience is a righteousness that comes not because of our own religious effort, but because of the faithfulness and the goodness of the one who is at work within our lives. Again, friends, I know you know that. But do we know that? You know, if I had to provide a definition of righteousness, I would say it really comes down to this. That to be righteous is to be in a right relationship with God through Christ. And the most important thing I think we have to remember is that it is a gift we receive and not a wage that we earn. You know, if I'm really honest, there are times in my life that I learn of grace, and yet in the moments of fear and doubt, I think, well, maybe I should hedge my bets a little bit, you know? Maybe I just need to keep God in in my good graces because, man, if he saw how broken and messed up I really am, he would probably go running and screaming in the other direction. Friends, can we be honest? It's God we're talking about. He's seen it all. In fact, let me even say this. God is more aware of your brokenness and your depravity than you are. And yet, in his mercy and grace, he has come to bring us life through relationship with him. You know, one of the things that I find intriguing is the way that Jesus himself in other places in scripture uses this picture of relationship with him to describe satisfaction and the satisfaction of hunger. Listen to the words of Jesus from John chapter 6. Because Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know, one of the things that uh, I've been introduced to as a newbie to the South is this whole thing called the meat and three. Okay? Like, I, I, I try to describe a meat and three back to people on the West Coast and like, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> And the reality is, I think a lot of times we treat faith a lot like a meet and three. You know, 
God, we want the main entree of your righteousness. We want the main entree of your goodness, provision, and grace. But you know, we wouldn't mind it if you threw in a little bit of self-control or like a little bit of me still being in control. If you would throw in a little bit, a, a good side dish of comfort, ease, security, living life on my terms rather than yours. And I fear that one of the great dangers that face those of us who live in 21st century America is that we've come to a place where we have lost the desperation for righteousness in Christ. We have lost the desperation both for our desperate need for him and the invitation to radically reorient every part of our life around who he is. And is it any wonder then that as we live from that place of a divided heart, we miss out on the satisfaction and the joy that God has for us? And perhaps it's because we haven't really mastered what true satisfaction is really all about. And it's why then I want to point us towards the blessedness of feasting on righteousness. You know, Jesus says that uh, those who hunger and thirst are blessed because uh, they'll be satisfied. Well, when Jesus talks about this satisfaction, what exactly does he mean? Uh, this word for satisfaction in the Greek, I love it. it. It was a word that was used to describe the fattening up of a farm animal. In other words, what was given in this satisfaction was not merely uh, the absence of hunger. But it was such a joyful abundance that the animal literally grew fat. Do we think of God's provision and grace for us in that way? I mean, if, if, uh, if you're like me, sometimes I picture God a lot like the soup Nazi in Seinfeld, you know? No soup for you. You know, like the, this idea of like, I only want to give them just as much as they need in order to get by. But the scriptures are painting a picture of God who is so good, so generous, so bountiful that he loves to bless his people with his righteousness, goodness, and mercy in their lives. And can I suggest for you that the reason why we so often fail to experience spiritual transformation in our life is not because God isn't hungry and ready to give it to us. It's because we're just content feasting on all the wrong things. You see, the thing about spiritual satisfaction is, is we discover the source of all that we need. We're freed from looking for spiritual junk food in all the wrong places. You know, as I was thinking about this week, I was reminded of my kids when they were babies. If you, if you have infants or you've raised an infant, you know that when a kid is hungry, literally Everything stops. I mean, they, they scream, they throw a fit. I remember these moments of them routing around in order to try and uh, get their bottles. And I remember one day in particular when Ethan was a little baby, I think this is him about a year old, and uh, Ethan was on formula. And I'd mixed this formula for Ethan, and at the time he was having a little bit of a hard time keeping it down, and I thought, okay, he really likes this stuff. I think I'm going to taste it. You ever tried baby formula? It's disgusting. It's foul. Don't ever try it. It's like somewhere between like rotten protein powder and like rotten eggs all mixed together. It's horrid. So here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm trying this 
formula. And right about the same time, uh, we're having dinner. And uh, we had called in Pizza Hut that night, and there was uh, some pizza that I had left on the counter. And at the corner of my eye, I see this little hand reach across, grab a piece of the pizza, and yank it back. And he just chomps down on that thing. And I watched his eyes grow as big as half dollars. I mean, it was like a whole new culinary world had been opened up to him because he had tasted pizza for the first time. And to this day, guess what his favorite food is? Pizza. And you know, the reality is every time I think about that moment, I wonder how many times would God set us at his table and put pizza in front of us? But we'd say, man, we want formula. He'd put before us the finest tomahawk steak that this world has to offer. But we look to other things as if those are the things that really satisfy. That's why I'm always taken by the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory. When he gives us this very well-known quote, when he says, It would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer at the holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And every time I read that, it just lays me out. Because it so exposes the desperate longing of my heart that when I don't keep my eyes on Jesus, when I allow those misplaced affections to take over in my heart, I lose sight on that which matters most. How often God would offer us a steak at Ruth's Chris and we're content to find what we can get at Applebee's. And the reality is, experiencing the continual transformation of God's grace and mercy in our life come not in us working harder, but in our willingness to surrender and to abandon our lives and trusting that he knows what he really needs. You know, as I was thinking about this idea of hungering and thirsting this week, I was reminded that so much of the spiritual journey is about unlearning more than it is learning. It's about learning to unlearn that the things that the world has always promised us will come up empty again and again and again. That beyond the promise of all experience, joy and satisfaction when I have that career, we discover that there's just another challenge behind it. That in that place where we say, my life will be happy and complete when I have a spouse, we discover that when we find ourselves in a relationship with another, it's work. And as beautiful and as a gift as it is, we bring two broken people into that relationship. That what satisfies is not having another spouse, but it comes in living in surrender to God. Maybe it's trusting that the answer is not in getting everybody to like you, but to sit again in the mystery that you have been profoundly loved by a God who was so ready to make you righteous that he was willing to go to the cross for you. And he is willing to look across the ages of time and space into your eyes and say, you 
are mine. We know that. Do we know that? And I think ultimately the question that this beatitude leaves us with is simply this. What do you want? What do you desire? And where are you looking to find it? Maybe you're here today and you're looking for security. Do you know that security isn't found in the balance of your retirement? It is found in the faithfulness of the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That significance will never be found in making a name for yourself, but in recognizing that the only one worth making a name for is the one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. To recognize that if you're looking for the approval and love in the arms of other people, you will discover again and again that no person can love you the same way that the God of the universe has loved you from the start. And perhaps the journey of transformation begins when we finally embrace the refusal to go through spiritual drive through spiritual fast food, and to feast again in the relationship and the depth of the life to which we've been invited. And can I suggest to you that the impact of that is one that not only impacts our own lives, but one that would have a profound effect on the world. Probably in my top five quotes that have ever been spoken outside of scripture, one of them comes from John Wesley. And I, I found myself again meditating on those words as I was looking at this passage. And he gives us this powerful call. And he says, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I don't care a straw whether they be clergy or laymen. I don't care if they're pastors or they work in a factory or they work in an office. I don't care what their occupation is. If they have this singular desire, such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Friends, the invitation of this beatitude is to come back again to a singular hunger. The invitation to come back to the recognition that that which will only satisfy our lives is that which is found at the feet of Jesus. Rather than working our heads off looking in 10,000 places for that which never satisfies, we are invited to come again and again to recognize that he has loved us, he has called us, and he is sending us to make his love known. And invite the worship team to come back up. And as they do, I want to simply make space today to allow for us to put this perspective recalibrator on. If satisfaction is met in God, in God alone, if, if those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because they have the single-minded, refined palate of the kingdom of heaven, where do we need to let God change our diet today? Where do we need to surrender the spiritual fast food of what this world has to offer and come again to that which matters most? Between you and Jesus, I just invite you, listen for his voice today. Where might he be inviting you?